Why is life hard? That's what we're here to look at. That's the really potent question. People have historically used the story of Adam and Eve as an answer. That's why, because of what happened in that story. But looking into that story brings up its own list of questions. Genetically, how did the human race start with just two people? Why does God put a harmful tree in the garden in the first place? Why doesn't God stop the snake or know beforehand what the snake is going to do and prevent it? And what's got to be the biggest one, why does eating a piece of fruit make God so mad that he curses everyone forever? It seems like too many obstacles. Like the path to this being a satisfying answer can't be navigated. Unless we had the right vehicle. Swedenborg wrote, If people realized how much was hidden in each verse, they would be dumbfounded. So much is hidden that it could never be told. This fact is scarcely visible in the letter. And so what is this hidden material? And could it be the key to realizing, hey, maybe these two do go together after all? Well, we're going to take a look at that tonight. Stay tuned. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg in Life. Thank you very much for coming. If we can make it through this one, we can get through anything. Uh, uh, I say that because this is one of the more technical episodes. Uh, my name is Curtis Childs. To begin, I'm with the Swedenborg Foundation. And what we're going to look into today is what Swedenborg began his entire spiritual writing phase with, which is an explanation of the meaning of the stories in the Old Testament. And he was doing this in his huge work, Secrets of Heaven, you know, going verse by verse, explaining everything, and he wasn't selling any books. I mean, he wasn't moving, you know, he was giving away the proceeds, but he wasn't moving any books because it was hard to understand and people, wait, I don't get this. Why do you have this? What does this mean? I don't... So, he switched and started doing things that would interest people and bring them back to it, but we're just going to go right after that, right after this tough stuff, because it's fascinating once you can get through the technical side of it, the, the meaning that he pulls out of these stories. It goes from being confusing, uh, why are these stories relevant, what do they mean, to like, oh, that's cool. That, that, that means something, and it teaches you something about life. So we're going to try to take that, make that transformation happen with one of the more famous stories in the Bible tonight, the story of Adam and Eve. And while we're going, if it gets confusing, or if you think something's interesting, you want to comment on it, get your questions and comments in. At the end of the show, we're going to have a look at it all. And we, you, can help, you can help me, because this is like a complex story for me to remember how to tell as well, so you help me tie it together if I leave something out. Cool. Thanks. All right, let's take a look. We're going to get right into it, starting with the garden. So there's too much. Even in this, the, you know, the Garden of Eden story just runs a couple of chapters in the Bible, and there's too much to get into even there. So we're going to have to sort of go character by character rather than every single line by line. And if, if you're new... What we're doing here is looking at this through the lens of what Swedenborg would call correspondences, which is, mm, it's a bit like dream symbolism. Uh, it is that everything, all the things that appear in these stories are metaphors for deeper things, for spiritual things, for, th for psychological things that apply to everyone universally. Swedenborg wrote that not just stories in this sacred text were written that way, but that 
everything in the universe, everything we've ever seen or interacted with is this kind of metaphor as well. So if we learn this language here, we learn the language of everything. All right, so the payoff is good. We're going to move through like that. And it all begins with plants. Swedenborg says that plants, you know, out where you see them in the world, also in the pages of the Old and New Testaments, they are symbols for things in the mind. That the human, that, that ideas, um, worldviews, those kind of things, the, the sort of building blocks of consciousness grow like plants. And if you take plants and you have them a bunch together organized, you get yourself a garden which is an image of the mind, and in the mind in various stages. Swedenborg wrote this in Heaven and Hell. Uh, he said, a garden, in general terms, corresponds, so there's that word, I told you, it's correspondences, man, to heaven in respect to intelligence and wisdom, which is why heaven is called the garden of God. So the garden of God is the human mind, Every all these little plant-like things in the human mind organized in the right way. That That's the mindset of heaven. That's the garden of God. So, we're talking about gardens, their meaning to in, in relation to the human psyche, and from the human psyche to how we go and affect the rest of everyone in the planet. So, that's, those are the stakes, and let's take a look now at this very, very famous garden, the Garden of Eden. And Jehovah God planted a garden in Eden on the east, and put in it the human whom he had formed. And Jehovah God caused to sprout from the ground every tree desirable in appearance and good for food, and the tree of lives in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river was going out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It is circling the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is delium there, and shoham stone. And Jehovah God took the human and put the human in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to guard it. So there you have the beginning of the story. And there is a lot in there, and we're actually having, even that was truncated, like we took parts out, and even from that, piece that we gave you, we're going to have to pull things, uh, we're going to have to skip over some things because there's so much material. You know, Swedenborg wrote t- lots and lots of volumes, 15 volumes in the, in the current translation, just on the first couple books of the Old Testament, so there's a lot in there. But try to think as, as we look at this stuff that, that all those details have meanings, and we'll try to skim over a few of them as we go. And so we're going to take this story, the garden, the people get put in the garden, there's the snake and the casting out, what does it all mean, and how does it explain why life is like it is today? So, first of all, let's take a look at what this garden means. In Secrets of Heaven 99, Swedenborg wrote that for people whose character is heavenly— The inner life is patterned in such a way that the Lord enters into their understanding, reason, and knowledge by way of love and the convictions of love. And since they are free of conflict, they can see that this is so. So Swedenborg described heaven heaven being a state of mind and the heavenly mindset or the character of heaven is, part of it is this sensation of connection with God. And he says that people used to have that. This, this is not, he doesn't say that Adam and Eve are literally the first two people on earth, but he says they are representative of what the initial mindset of the human race was. That there was this first state when everything was like 
you'd think it should be if there really is God and God is love that you uh, that people would know knew the truth about things like we here we get plopped into the middle of existence and we try to figure is there a God is there not a God is what is the purpose of life how did we get here is there a meaning to life what's going on here we don't know and how do you love people how do you act sometimes it seems like you don't know the right way to act all this stuff is a mystery but back in the day you could have direct access to these kind of things. People will have near-death experiences now, and they'll say, oh, I had all this knowledge. I just knew all this stuff. And it used to be like that because of the initial garden state. And he talks there about trees. Uh, there was rivers. In, in, this, in the Bible verse, there was trees. There was rivers, all that kind of stuff. And we have an image of those here. All this stuff, when we show these images... Let your mind wander on them, knowing, okay, this is overall the picture of the mind, the ideal mind state. What does all this stuff mean? The trees, we're going to focus on a couple trees in a minute. Rivers have to do with intelligence and wisdom. The tr- water is a correspondence for truth. So what water does in the physical world, you know, waters things, uh, cleans things, gives life. That's what truth does within the mind. And these rivers that are mentioned there are these images of the wisdom of that ancient, of that heavenly mindset. And then it talks about gold and jewels, and it comes in this pair. The gold is about goodness and love, and the jewels are about truth and uh, wisdom. And that, because you have stones meaning truth in general. See how technical this is? This is why it was, uh, it's hard for people to stay interested. But it's coming in this pair, because everything is paired, just like we have thoughts and feelings. That same pairing, so the gold has to do with the feelings, and the gems, the precious stones, have to do with the thoughts, and that the things that people have in that the heavenly mindset are that valuable, you know, that, that there's that kind of stuff just sitting on the ground there. So that is what all that stuff symbolizes, but let's start to fill out our cast of characters here. Our first character, and some of these aren't going to seem like characters, I mean, this even this one is a stretch, but we're going to take a look at the, what is often called the tree of life or the tree of lives, and so... As we take a peek at this, it'll have its own little intro video. Start to get a sense of what does it mean to you? Because we're gonna what it means is what we base the whole story on. So here it is, the tree of life. And everything, every detail of how it's described in the story means something. Even its location means something. And Swedenborg describes it here. Secrets of Heaven, number 105. The tree of lives is love and the faith it leads to. In the middle of the garden means in the will that belongs to the inner self. So we have our first character is this tree of life or tree of lives. And it means love and the the things that belong to love. And the fact that it was in the middle of the garden means it's in our will, which would a lot of people now you would say in the heart or in the central place. What what do you care about the most? When the tree of life is in the middle there, uh, you care about love. You care about helping people. You care about serving and connecting. Uh, How are other people feeling? That's having the tree of life in the middle. But that wasn't the only tree. It's maybe not even the most famous tree. Of course, there's the other one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, if the tree of life is having love central to your life, what is this tree of knowledge of good and evil? Uh, And Swedenborg gives commentary on it, of course. The tree of knowledge of good and evil symbolizes faith, 
based on evidence from the senses, that is, on secular knowledge. So it's an interesting combo there. That he says, it's faith, which you sort of associate that word with something religious, based on secular things. So, But really, faith is your ultimate beliefs about life, what you make your decisions based on. And so that is taking what you can see out in the world around you and making that central uh, rather than having the tree of life at the center, which is love comes first, then everything that I can discern. So we're going to talk a lot more about that in a second, but let's see where the story goes from here. And Jehovah God commanded the human concerning it, saying, From every tree of the garden you definitely may eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, because on the day on which you eat from it you will surely die. So it's pretty dire consequences for for chomping the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But just an aside, you don't die when you eat it. I mean, Adam and Eve, spoiler alert, uh, Adam and Eve do eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they don't die, do they? They keep on going, and they live, and they have children, and all this stuff. So what is that death, and what is eating from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Secrets of Heaven 126 People are allowed to depend on any perception they receive from the Lord to tell them what is true or good, but not on themselves or the world around them. To do so would be the death of their heavenly quality. So we're talking about an initial mindset, a golden age of the human race, when you could tell, you like you'd think, if there's really God, and God like loves everybody, wants to be everybody's friend, wants to help everybody, why can't I just talk to God? Why can't I f- hear from God and get good advice on my life and have questions and get answers? There was this initial mindset where you had that, but eating from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you know, to say, hey, I, I don't want to rely on that perception. I want to go pick things out, you know, rationalize away from that. That doesn't lead to you dying. It leads to the death of that initial mindset. It leads to confusion. It leads to what we have now. So that's what that is. I mean, that, that is the consequence of eating from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, is that we lose this idyllic state where we can tap into the greatest source of knowledge where, where everything can, can immediately be evident. Um, and we're going to see a little more about what, uh, why that's a bad thing, or why, why that causes hardship, I should say, uh, you know, coming up soon. For now, we've got our trees introduced, but let's get to sort of the stars of the story. Let's talk about the couple. Okay, so the story moves on from here. Let's take a look at Genesis. We're in chapter 2 now, verse 7. And Jehovah God formed a human, dirt from the ground, and he breathed into the human's nostrils the breath of lives, and the human was made into a living soul. So we got a new character now. And again, let's introduce ourselves to this character and start to open up the mind to what, what could he be, what could, what could he mean. So here's Adam. Of course, that's not a photograph of Adam. We don't know how any of these people looked. We got, there's a bunch of free, uh, copyright-free art. Of, you know, there have been painters for, for hundreds and hundreds of years painting this story. So that's where we got all our imagery from. Uh, so that's why it looks like it does. Now, Adam 
what does he symbolize? It's a little bit complicated. Um, we have a little diagram here. Actually, not only is it confusing enough that everything has an inner meaning, but the meaning changes based on the context, the pronouns that refer to the people, and where in the story it's happening. So you can see in Secrets of Heaven 95, Adam is our outer self. By 156, he's flipped inside. He's the inner being now. But there he's called the man instead of the human. And then by 229, he's talking about how Adam is our rational capacity. So he doesn't stay static. And that Swedenborg says that each little part of a story can have its own set of meanings. And actually, there are multiple layers of meaning going on in the story at the same time, which is confusing. But You'd think of this really what, if, if the Bible really is as potent as he says it is, um, that it would be complicated, as all potent things are, you know? Um, so, uh, basically, if you take the th- different things that Adam is, and you kind of put the dots uh, in a circle and sort of draw a point in the middle, he, he you could call him our awareness or our ability to understand things, uh, or our ability to know things. That's generally what Adam is, okay? So we've got him there, and now we've got the story of how he interacts with the animals around him. And Jehovah God said, It is not good for the human to be alone. Let me make him an aid that seems to be his. And out of the soil, Jehovah God formed every animal of the field and every bird in the heavens and brought it to the human to see what he would call it. And whatever the human called the living soul, that was its name. And the human gave names to every beast, and to the bird in the heavens, and to every wild animal of the field. But for the human, no aid was found that seemed to be his. I want to do a whole show about the naming the animals thing, um, because the inner meaning of that, I think, is so cool. And it is that if you, if you read Swedenborg, you'll see consistently, like I said in the beginning, plants symbolize things of the mind, but so do animals and birds. That uh, animals have, like mammals, uh, reptiles, have to do more with uh, emotive things or um, uh, emotional or, or feeling kind of things, and that birds, are, birds and fish are more cognitive things, thoughts. Um, and what's cool is this naming of the animal, to name something means to know its quality. You know, that, oh, I can name that. You, you sort of gain some familiarity with it. And Swedenborg says the correspondence of naming something is knowing its quality. So, for Adam to name all the animals is describing this heavenly state when people understood what all their thoughts and feelings were. That, that might not sound that profound, but for us, we don't we don't, I mean, you can have, I have sort of this urge to go do this thing. Oh, that turned out to be a disaster. You know, we don't know what that, or we have these feelings that we act on, it turns out to cause all kinds of problems, or we get this thought that we think is going to be a great idea, but it's not. Some people are, are completely convinced that uh, something that that is really, really bad and destructive is good. You can see, just look at people who have an opposing viewpoint from you. You can see they think that this, what you would consider a fearsome animal, is this tame, nice animal. We don't know what these animals are, and it causes all kinds of problems. Generally, people can label something, but you get somebody who's completely flipped and thinks it's something that everyone else is like, ooh, don't, that's a hideous thing, don't touch that. They're like, oh, that's fine, and you end up getting people who cultivate that and go on to commit these kind of horrible crimes. We don't know what the animals are. We don't know what's running around in the mind. There's generally is not good taxonomy, but in that initial heavenly state, you get people who can 
you know, you know what you're dealing with. This is something I need to leave alone. This is something to pursue. This is something to just muse on. I mean, that sounds like a cool state when you're naming the animals. But at the end of that, it says that Adam named all the animals, but didn't find an aid that seemed to be his. And Swedenborg has commentary on what that phrase, an aid that seemed to be his, mean. This is Secrets of Heaven 142. So we're going to give you a refresher on this Genesis verse here. And the human gave, gave names to every beast and to the bird in the heavens and to every wild animal of the field. But for the human, no aid was found that seemed to be his. Even though they, and this is talking about the earliest people in this mindset, even though they recognized the nature of, vir- of the virtuous emotions and true concepts given them as gifts by the Lord, they still strove for autonomy. As expressed in the same words used before, he did not find an aid that seemed to be his. So people want to be feel like they're separate. So you have this initial state, everything's great, you can tell, oh, God is giving me this thought, God is giving me this feeling, but like a kid growing up, you want to start to do things for yourself. That this, I, I, want, to fall, I want to move a little farther from the mother tree. You know, I want to move out. People were wanting to be autonomous. People were wanting to, wanting to be their own people. And God is not, uh, you know, a tyrant. So God says, all right, if, if that's what you want to do, we'll try this. All right. So the story continues. And Jehovah God made slumber fall on the human, and he went to sleep. But an important one, because this slumber is actually worth calling its own sort of character. So here we have Adam, and Adam is our sort of consciousness, our ability to know things, can recognize the thoughts and feelings within us and know what they mean and where they're going, but he falls to sleep. So if you have your own guess about what that sleep is, this was what Swedenborg says it meant. Secrets of Heaven 147, slumber means a state brought over us to make it seem to us as if we have autonomy. This state is like sleep because in it we have no idea that we do not live, think, speak, and act on our own. But when we begin to realize how wrong this view is, we are roused from our sleep and wake up. So have you ever done any research into near-death experiences or something like that where people say they have this, or or it's not even all kinds of spiritual experiences, you have this sort of oneness experience. I could see it was all connected, we were all connected. I was connected to this source of, of light and love. You know, how could I ever believe I was separate? Or people will say that, if you're living kind of an ego life, you're, you're separated from the source, or an unexamined life, you're separated, for this. So thi- separated from this. So this is the state of sleep that we're all in, in a way. That it seems to us like, I don't need anyone, nobody needs me, I'm, I'm just one, I'm my own little separate life, I'm not connected to the greater life. That, that this is the sleep that Adam went into. So, why did he go into it, and what does it mean? Let's continue. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And Jehovah God built a woman out of the rib that he took from the human and brought her to the human. And the human said, This time, bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. This is why she will be called wife, because she was taken from man. So, there you have uh, Eve, and she's going to be introduced now as our next character. Thank you. 
All right, so what is she? Uh, you know, if, if Adam is something, what is Eve? Uh, generally, she's complicated like Adam's complicated, but overall you could say Eve is our sense of autonomy. That, that she, that people, we wanted to feel separate, and she is this sense of separateness. And she was made out of a rib, but we don't just remember that because we don't have time to talk about it now because we want to save that for the end, but we'll be coming back to that, all right? So she's made out of a rib, uh, and it means something. That's all we'll say for now. So there she is. What happens after that? We'll take a look at the video. Therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So what does that mean, that joining together? All right, so now you don't just have Eve as a character, you have them together as a couple. So take a look at this and just think about what does it mean to have sort of our sense of knowing things and our sense of of independence together. And they're still in the garden, they're still happy, they're still in a good state. So it's not like, you know, it's so bad for them to get together. And Swedenborg comments on this, Secrets of Heaven 160. So this is the, yeah, you'll leave mother and father and, and cling together. Leaving father and mother is leaving the inner being behind, as it is the inner being that conceives and gives birth to the outer being. So the outer being would be generally what we all experience as consciousness now. You know, we sometimes get flashes of this inner self, but generally we're in the outer self. To cling to one's wife is to have an inner being with, within our outer being, which is the state we're all in now. That they are to be one flesh means that the two coexist there. Sorry, prior to this time, the inner being was spirit as was the outer being through its connection with the inner. Now, however, they became flesh. By this means, heavenly spiritual life was linked so closely with the sense of independence that they seemed to form a unit. This later generation of the earliest church, so these early people he's talking about, was not evil. They were still good. And because they were eager to live in their outer being or selfhood, the Lord granted them their wish. In his mercy, though, he wove a heavenly spiritual quality into their self-sufficiency. So people wanted to be separate. So this, uh, you know, our knowingness wanted to be separate. So it got this sense of, hey, I can do things on my own. I can be my own person. And this was its wife. This is something that happens inside all of us, whether we're male or female. We have this sort of outer self that can links up to this feeling that, hey, we are our own person, which is true, but it doesn't quite acknowledge the depth of connection we have to God and to other people. However, there's a lot of good and necessary things about it. Just as when you're a little toddler trying to assert yourself, you need to feel like you're your own, even if you can't actually feed yourself. When I see little kids just like trucking away from their parents, you know, like, where are you going? You, you can't survive. You don't know how to feed yourself. You don't know how to pay your taxes. But they're just like, I'm going, I'm out of here. So they have this feeling like they're directing their own lives, at least for parts of it. And that's what we have there, which actually, as we're going to see, is can lead us to something really cool. But unfortunately, historically, it took a bad turn. And we're going to talk about that turn right now. All right, you made it this far. It's tough. It's tough stuff, but you made it this far. I'm pumped, and now we get to talk about the snake. Yeah, the snake is an interesting character, and and I really like 
what it means and how it applies. So let's hear how the snake makes his entrance. And the snake was crafty above every wild animal of the field that Jehovah God had made. And it said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree of the garden? So the snake shows up and he's like, Man, are you sure that you heard God right? So what does it mean? What does that snake mean? It doesn't mean he was crafty over every animal of the field. If you're paying attention earlier, you know, that doesn't just mean, oh, the snake is smarter than other physical animals. The animals are the things inside us. So what does it all mean? First, we're going to get there, but first, let's really let this character sink into the mind. And as you're looking at it, just think, what what could this be and, and how can this play a role? So here's the serpent. All right, so generally, Swedenborg writes that the serpent is our sensory experience. And he elaborates that on, on that a little bit more here, Secrets of Heaven 194. The snake is used here to mean our senses, which we trust. The wild animal of the field means every emotion in our outer self. The woman means selfhood. The snake's words mean that for the first time, they had doubts. In ancient times, people who put more trust in what they learned through their senses than in what had been revealed were called snakes. Sense-oriented people, or those who believed only what their senses tell them, deny that spirit exists because they cannot see it. It isn't anything, they say, because I can't sense it. If I can see or touch something, then I know that it exists. So once we felt like we were sort of our own people, and we can do things, then we start to, like, before we had this direct perception of God, a direct perception of spiritual reality. But once we moved away from that, and the only thing we directly perceived anymore was our sensory input. And there, you start to look around and you say, is any of that stuff really real? Um, So that was when the first doubt began to creep in. And it's not just like, oh, the worst thing is to whether or not you believe in an idea of God or not, but it's about, you know, we said the tree of life, having that at the center is the love at the center. God is inseparable from love. They're, they're, they're the same thing. So to start to move away from this connection to God is to start to move into rationalizing your way out of love, as we'll see in a minute. But let's let the story tell itself here. And the snake said to the woman, You are not going to surely die, because God knows that on the day when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, continuing our story, Secrets of Heaven 204, Swedenborg says, If they ate from the fruit of the tree, their eyes would be opened, means that if they scrutinized the tenets of faith from a sensory or factual standpoint, that is, from their own minds, they would clearly see that these tenets were not true. Their being like God, knowing good and evil, means that if they judged good and evil for themselves, they would be like God and would be able, would be able to lead themselves. So that last phrase is what I want to focus on, leading yourself. Human life, as it's set up now, according to Swedenborg, which is why we're having this show, is there are sort of two paths. You can be led by yourself, which really, you know, that's a that's kind of a confusing term. It really, you can be led by the cravings and delusions of your sort of outer ego mind. The, the, the things that your, the things you want to do in the moment or the thing, your sort of addictions or your urges, those kinds of things can pull you along or you can be led from this sort of higher sense 
of principle, uh, which even if you don't realize it at the time, that is God working in. And this wanting to lead yourself rather than be led by love, which love is God, uh, causes all kinds of problems. And this is a little commentary on innocence that Swedenborg made in Heaven and Hell 280. And innocence, as he describes it, is this desire to be led by the divine. Um, rather than by self-centered motives. Since innocence is being led by the Lord and not by ourselves, all the people who are in heaven are in innocence, since all the people who are there love to be led by the Lord. They know that to be led by oneself is to be led by one's self-centeredness, and self-centeredness is loving oneself. People who are in love with themselves are not willing to be led by anyone else. This is why angels are in heaven to the extent that they are in innocence. That is, to the extent they are absorbed in divine good and divine truth. For being absorbed in these things is being in heaven. So it's not like, and it's confusing, Swedenborg uses this term, love of self, loving yourself like it's the worst thing in the world. And I know a lot of people struggle with self-esteem or with feeling good or they get negative messages from other people or from their minds about themselves. So you want to love yourself, right? It's not the dynamic Swedenborg is describing here. What he's talking about when he says loving self, you notice at the end he juxtaposes that with being led by divine love and divine truth. Um, to be led by self is is to be led by the urge to make everything else in the universe serve you, whereas to be led by divine love and divine truth is to say, oh, I want to do things because they're the right things to do, and because I want to believe things because they're the true things. That that is being led in innocence, believe it or not. So that's what he's talking about there. All right, let's continue our story. And the eyes of both were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And they sewed together the leaf of the fig tree and made loincloths for themselves. So now we've got this shame that comes into the picture. Um, and this was when they, after they ate of the tree, the couple, who's a symbolic couple, began to feel this sort of shame. that they, they were naked before, but didn't really bug them, but now they made these little suits out of leaves. And this nakedness was the beginning of judgment. Because, as Swedenborg says, God doesn't judge people, but once you start to leave love behind, you start to come into judging. Divine Providence 321 is about how God is not interested in pointing out people's faults. He's just interested in getting good things to people. Divine Providence is not charging anyone with evil. Divine Providence, by the way, being God's government of the universe. Divine providence is not charging anyone with evil or crediting anyone with good. Rather, our own prudence is making each of these claims. This follows from everything that has just been said. The goal of divine providence is goodness. That is what it is aiming at in everything it does, so it does not credit anyone with goodness, because that would make our goodness self-serving, and it does not charge anyone with evil, because that would make us guilty of evil. We make both these claims out of our own sense of independence, because this sense of ours is nothing but evil. The claim to independence of our volition is self-love, and the claim to independence of our discernment is pride in our own intelligence. This is where our own prudence comes from. So he's talking about this sense of independence in the fallen state, which is where, hey, I'm so much smarter than everyone else, and everyone should serve me. Those are the, and the, 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 once you have those things in you, you start to look for flaws in other people and in yourself. God isn't looking for flaws like that. He's just, he doesn't care how good somebody is or how bad someone is. We're just trying to help them. 
You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you scored a million goodness points or you're down negative 20,000. We're just trying to help you. We're trying to lead you on the good path. So this whole shame thing started once people started to judge. All right? And then after they got ashamed, they heard God coming and they decided to book it out of there. So let's take a look. And they heard the voice of Jehovah God going alone in the garden at the breeze of the day. And the human hid himself, as did his wife from Jehovah God's face, in the middle of the tree of the garden. The breeze of the day, I think that's a great phrase. And so what does it mean? What is this hiding from God? Is God angry? Uh, you know, here you have, uh, you know, an image of God or angels moving through the garden, and they're hiding away. Um, so Swedenborg says that, that it's not always as it appears, um, you know, in the, in the sense of the letter. He writes in Secrets of Heaven 2.23, You know, God is not making an angry face at them. Since the Lord's face is mercy, peace, and everything good, it is clear that he never looks at anyone except with mercy and never turns his face from anyone. It is we, when we are wrapped up in evil, who turn our faces away. Mercy, peace, and all that is good, Jehovah's face, are what give rise to the inner call in the case of those who have perception, and those who have conscience too, but in a different way. These qualities always operate in a compassionate manner, but the way we receive them depends on our state. As we go through this, I'm, I'm noticing there are so many Swedenborgisms in all of these quotes. Like There are these other terminology, pieces of terminology that, that we haven't been explaining this episode. We wouldn't have time. So there's going to be stuff in those quotes that if you're new to Swedenborg, that's confusing. That's fine. You can just leave it. We, you can get, but we can get back to it another time. For now, the important thing to take away from that is that it's according, at the end, it said, how we're receptive to them. So if we start to get into these more evil states of mind, uh, we start to perceive God or love uh, as this negative thing, when really God's face doesn't change. God is always smiling or sympathetic, trying to help people, right? So that was this Adam and Eve hiding is not because God was mad, but because they started to feel this repulsion because of what they were letting in. So, the deed had happened. What were the repercussions for these early people and then for all of us in all of our minds now? So, let's take a look now at the fallout. So, that's a, you can't see at the bottom of that picture, Eve is pointing at the snake. So it's kind of God saying, hey, what'd you do? And Adam's like, oh, she made me do it. And she's like, ah, oh, the snake made me do it. So it's just passing the, the blame down the chain, which is, uh, we're going to see now how all these different pieces of our mind, all these things, Adam, Eve, the snake, it's all in us. That's how all these stories are. It's not about who's better, who's worse, uh, or how other people are. This is how we take this and we look at ourselves, and hopefully we get the keys to getting ourselves out of this trouble, out of this curse that we're in now. Because, yeah, if you know the Bible story, next there comes all these curses. Uh, the first, And we're going to look into what are the internal meanings of this. Is God really cursing people because he's mad? That kind of stuff. So first we got the curse on the snake. So the snake being our sensory experience, our outer sort of perception, what is the curse on the snake? And we'll, for that, we're going to look to Genesis 3. And Jehovah God said to the snake, Because you have done this, a curse on you, above every beast and above every wild animal of the field. You will travel on your belly and eat dirt all the days of your life. Yipes. Well, I mean, it doesn't seem so bad. 
I mean, you got to travel on your belly. But for snakes, that's advantageous ecologically. I mean, they can get into little holes and get their food. So on a physical level, it's not that bad. You know, snakes are very successful. They've done well for themselves. But what does it mean on a spiritual level? What is the symbolism in this story? What is that curse? And how did it come about? Secrets of Heaven 242. Jehovah God said to the snake means that they perceive their reliance on their senses to be at fault. So it's not even God condemning, it's people understanding, oh, we made a mistake. The curse on the snake above every beast and above every wild animal of the field symbolizes the fact that the sensory level of their mind turned away from what was heavenly toward what was bodily, bringing a curse on itself. So the curses come, it's not God is punishing, that that if you break connection you just lose some of the benefits of being connected. You bring brings the curse on itself. Here is before the beast and the wild animal of the field symbolize feelings. The serpent's traveling on its belly means that the sensory level could no longer look up toward heavenly values, but had to look down toward bodily and earthly ones. Bodily and earthly values are like, as we were saying before, uh, I want to serve myself, um, everyone else get out of my way. Eating dirt all the days of its life means that the sensory plane became incapable of living on anything but what was bodily and earthly, so that it turned hellish. In the earliest, heavenly sort of people, the sensory capacities of the body served the inner self obediently, and beyond that they had no interest in those capacities. After they began to love themselves, though, they put sense experience ahead of the inner self. So another way to think about that is, how much trouble in the world is coming about because people want sensory gratification. You think about greed and the desire to have tons of stuff. A lot of people are living in poverty because there is this greed for excessive luxury, you know, uh, or greed to rule and dominate. So that reliance on that I'm going to turn to sensory experience to try to fill this hole, that causes all kinds of problems. That's the curse on the snake. All right, but we got more curses. We got curses for everybody. Next, the curse on Eve. So Eve being uh, uh, part of our feeling side and the sense of autonomy, the sense that we are our own person. What is the curse on Eve? And we're going to find that again in Genesis. And to the woman he said, I will vastly multiply your pain in conception. In pain you will bear children, and your obedience will be to your husband, and he will rule over you. All right, so it's going to hurt to have babies, and your husband's going to boss you around. Again, this is not commentary on gender disparity. This is stuff that's in all of us, male or female. Adam's in there, Eve's in there, the serpent's in there. So what does that mean, that part of all of us, Eve, is cursed like this. Well, I don't know, but Swedenborg does, and he says it here, Secrets of Heaven 263 and following. When the sensory level of the mind turns away and brings a curse on itself, as we were just talking about, the consequence is that evil spirits, and if you've followed this show at all, you know Swedenborg talks about the influence of evil spirits, start to fight hard, and the angels present with us start to work hard. So vastly multiplying pain and conception and in the bearing of children depicts this conflict in our thinking and in the development of true ideas. So when we don't know what's going on anymore, evil attacks Heaven tries to defend, and we end up with all the confusing, painful thoughts and feelings and the painful combination of them that we have now. 
And further, Secrets of Heaven 265, because the eating from the tree of knowledge had destroyed wisdom and understanding, the man means the ability to reason, since nothing else was left. The rational capacity imitates or seems to resemble an intelligent understanding. The husband or man here, as before, symbolizes the rational capacity which the church is to obey and which will rule. So the church being this thing inside of us. So once we didn't, we no longer had this perception, we didn't know what was good or what was bad or how to do things or what the truth was. So we had, we couldn't just feel our way through life anymore. We had to think our way through. We had to make our best guesses based on our available data. That is a symbol of Adam ruling over Eve, because we don't have this connection with God. So it's got to be like, okay, we don't know what to do. We got to think about it, figure out the best course. And that was another part of the the curse on Eve. So we had these confusing thoughts and feelings together and that we would have to use our thinking minds to get everything done because we didn't have this connection anymore. But Adam doesn't get away from all this scot-free. Matter of fact, he gets cursed too. So the curse on Adam involves work. But what is that work and how does it show up in us? Again, Genesis 3. And to the human he said, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate from the tree concerning which I commanded you, saying, You will not eat from it. A curse on the ground because of you. In great pain you will eat from it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorn and thistle for you, and you will eat the grass of the field. You will eat bread and the sweat of your face until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dirt, and to dirt you will return. All right, so a lot of cursing, a lot of cursing there. So Adam again being our our ability to know things, sort of our, our discerning mind. What does those curses mean, and how might we recognize some of those in us? Secrets of Heaven, two sixty seven. The human or Adam, in listening to the voice of his wife, symbolizes the rational faculty and the fact that it consented. So when we started to move away from love and towards this self-centeredness, the rational mind was like, all right, well, I can think of good reasons why it's better to be self-centered. You know, it helps me this. Society needs it. That's the rational mind's consent. Because the rational mind consented, it also turned away or brought a curse on itself, turned away from God. On this account, the whole outer self did the same which is what is symbolized by a curse on the ground because of you. And if you watched our other Bible interpretation episode where we talked about the days of creation and the ground, that the ground symbolizes our outer self. So that's consistent here to there. Uh, When the rational mind consents to self-dependence, it separates the outer self from the inner, so that we no longer know the inner self exists. As a result, we also fail to see what understanding and wisdom are, belonging as they do to the inner realm. The things demonstrated above make it clear that Jehovah God, the Lord, did not curse the ground, which is the outer self. The outer self, rather, turned away or separated from the inner self and brought a curse on itself by doing so. So again, you move farther away from this heavenly state with these actions. So you don't have that connection anymore. It's not that God is like, all right, I'm sick of you. It's that we don't look that way anymore. We're looking down instead of up. Uh, Or these people were then, but it also has to do with us now. We're going to get to that in a minute. But one more thing about the curse on Adam, Secrets of Heaven 270. The symbolism of eating from the ground in great pain 
The deeper sense of eating is living. An unhappy life is the kind that follows when evil spirits start to attack, and the angels with us begin to struggle. Life becomes even more unhappy later when the evil spirits start to take command. Those spirits then control our outer self, and the angels control our inner self, of which so little is left that the angels can hardly call anything from it to defend us with. The consequence is misery and distress. So you might be saying, what is all this stuff about evil and good spirits? I don't know anything about that, but do you know anything about misery and distress? <laughs> That's Swedenborg says, all this stuff in our psyche is is affected by the spiritual world. So if you want to, in place of evil spirits, uh, painful thoughts and feelings. That's the conflict. The, there's nothing, have you ever felt like there's no food in the mind? Like you're hungry internally and there's nothing there. It's very hard for us to get food now. It's kind of like you know, going from being a, a gatherer, you're out just picking wild edibles and eating to now we got to till the ground and grow crops and water them and weed and chase away pests. That There's a difference. That, that happiness doesn't come easily to us, you know? It feels like it should, but it doesn't, and that this is part of it, all right? So those are the curses and we don't end there, right? Because then there's no uh, there's no up note on the end. So I want to take this last segment here to put it all in context. Look at how it has to do with this story is about the past, but it's also about the present and what hope we're moving to- towards. So let's take a look at part five. So. Two points initially uh, dealing with how I best understand the correspondence of this story. And I would say I'm not the authority on this kind of stuff. You can go, any of you can pick up, you can, for free, you can check the link in the description of this video. You can download this book, Secrets of Heaven, Volume 1, where he describes all this. Form your own opinion of what he's talking about. Maybe you'll understand it better than me. It's complicated. But from what I understand, there's a couple of elements here. First, uh, this is a story about history. Uh, this is talking about w- our ancestors and why they got into the mindset that we now inherit today. Swedenborg says that spiritual things are passed down as physical things are, that, that physically we get how our bodies are made up and how they're put together through genetics, but that spiritually you have this thing that he calls heredity, but that mindsets, ways of looking at life get passed down, and that because there was this initial kind of fall that he's talking about here, where it went from an idyllic state to a longing to be independent, but with some goodness to then um, love of power, taking the spot of love to others, that's why we all now are born in this... uh, state. So, which brings me to my second point, which is, this is also a story that's happening in all of us. That we, not only is this because it happened back in the day, but it's happening on a daily basis that the outer self deceives the inner self. That we think, okay, because you can just look at a person and get a sense of like, oh, I don't like that person. I don't like how they look. I don't like how they act. I don't like something they said. You know, they're stupid. Um, You get those kind of feelings rushing into the outer self. But if you step back and think about the inner self, that this is a person like me. They're trying to do a good job in life. They've got their own challenges. I've had moments of weakness as well. That's That's the inner self. But the snake the outer self is constantly deceiving the inner self, pulling it out of this Garden of Eden. We go through, I, I think we go through this story all the time in little loops. So the more we understand about it, the more we can kind of recognize it in ourself. However, it's not all bad. It's not like this was some colossal mistake. Actually, 
According to Swedenborg, this is all part of a longer path that's leading us toward something great. And we want to take a look here at Heaven and Hell 341 for a little bit on why we had to go through all of this as a human race and as individuals. So we're going back to innocence, right? We talked about it before. Innocence is wanting to be led by the Lord and not by oneself. So to the extent to which we are in innocence determines the extent to which we are freed from preoccupation, preoccupations with our self-image. And remember, being led by the Lord is being led by love, universal love. To the extent that we are freed from this self-image, we gain an identity given by the Lord. So it's not that we don't, we're not people anymore, we have just this new, better sense of self. The Lord's identity is what is called the Lord's righteousness and worth. Children's innocence, though, is not real innocence because it still lacks wisdom. Real innocence is wisdom because to the extent that we are wise, we want to be led by the Lord. Or what amounts to the same thing, to the extent that we love being led by the Lord, we are wise. So children are brought through from the outward innocence that characterizes them at first, which is called the innocence of infancy, to the inner innocence that is the innocence of wisdom. This latter innocence is the goal of their whole process of instruction. Consequently, when they arrive at the innocence of wisdom, the innocence of infancy that had served them as a matrix in the interim is united to them. So that's a lot of words that's just basically saying every human being is a microcosm of the story of the whole human race and of this journey. Because we start out in what seems like innocence, but it's as little kids, but it's the only thing we, we don't really have a choice about it. It's the only thing we know. But if we go down this road and we experience this autonomy and making mistakes and getting things wrong and figuring things out, we can eventually be brought to a free a free rejoining, where we say, I, I've seen life without this love and this connection to God, I want to get back there. And then we can go in there with it freely chosen. A kid doesn't have any choice about where they are, where they're born, or what they're like, they just are. But this way we can actually be free and, and be choosing. And that leads us into one of the coolest things that he says about the potential here, and it's also the bringing back of the rib asterisk, because why was Eve made out of a rib, and what does that mean? And it all ties together here in our final quote for the night, Secrets of Heaven 155. And this is the hope. This is that it's not just like, oh, everything was so great in the Garden of Eden, and now we can only hope to sort of get back there, that things can actually be better. The words, a woman was built out of a rib, conceal more than anyone can ever see in the literal meaning. The inmost concern here is the heavenly marriage which briefly is uh, our, our heart and our mind united in, in love. The heavenly marriage is something that exists in our selfhood. Moreover, it is because of the heavenly marriage that our selfhood, or our self-sense of independence, after being brought to life by the Lord, is called the Lord's bride and wife. When the Lord brings it to life, our sense of self gives us the ability to perceive all the good desired by love and all the truth taught by faith. So it holds within it all wisdom and understanding, joined to an indescribable happiness. Still, a few words will not be enough to explain the nature of this living autonomy called the Lord's bride and wife. I can offer only this much. The angels perceive that they live from the Lord, although when not reflecting, they are under full impression that they live on their own. This living selfhood is a sensation affecting all of them, telling them something has changed whenever they depart in the least from a loving goodness and living truth. They enjoy their customary peace and happiness, which defies description, when they share in a perception that they live from the Lord. 
A living sense of self is also what Jeremiah refers to when he says, Jehovah has created something new in the earth. A woman will encircle a man. This too is talking about the heavenly marriage, the woman symbolizing a sense of autonomy brought to life by the Lord. She is said to encircle the man because our self-life encircles us as the fleshed-out rib encircles the heart. So Eve is from a rib around the heart because there can be this joining like there is there of a sense of autonomy or a sense of self that's joined to love or joined to God. And that actually, when those two things go together, that can be the most potent thing. Because in that sense of we, God wants us to feel like life is our own. And when we have that feeling, but we don't use that feeling of life as our own to say, all right, well, this is my life. I'm going to mess everybody else up. I'm going to take things. I'm going to be powerful. I'm going to be cooler than everybody else. When we're instead, hey, I'm a person. I can contribute. I can give something to this world. I can, from myself, help people and love people. And I, in that I am connected to God and that this is a part of my, this makes my life better and this is great and I want to help. That is that is the most beautiful state that can exist. That partnership is the heavenly marriage. So really, there's the potential here that, that didn't even exist before we had this sense of autonomy. So the end game is not that um, we've, we don't have any sense of autonomy or that we're always evil. The end game is that we have this love in our hearts and this sense that we are our own person. And the Swedenborg says, the closer we get to God... Even though it doesn't seem like it, we actually seem like more and more like we are our own person. And that that is the happy state. That's the heaven that we're looking for. That's the heaven God wants to give people forever. Or so Swedenborg says, uh, you can take it if you would like it. If you made it through this far, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it or were close to enjoying it, uh, maybe consider giving it a thumbs up or subscribing to the channel so that you can get uh, connected, and that will also give us a lot of good uh, credibility with YouTube and let us get moving up their ranks and let new people see it, new people have the experience of being this confused. So, great. Now let's take a look at your questions and your comments right on the other side of this video break. Okay, so we got them. We got some questions, and I'm going to do my best to talk about them, and we'll see what comes of it. Let's take a look at the first one from YouTube. Deborah. Hi, Curtis. Thank you and Dr. Rose for the life-giving air of Swedenborg. Is there an online class, university, or college where I can drink more to quench this thirst of the truth Swedenborg offers? Thank you and stay blessed. Well, I think it's awesome that you're thirsty for more, and uh, that's a very Swedenborgian way to put it because that's the correspondence. Um, there are a couple... Of schools that that are related to Swedenborg, um, that we've had uh, representatives from both of them on this program. There is a uh, Brennathen College, um, Brennathen.edu, that has programs in Swedenborg. There's also um, uh, Pacific School of Religion, which we've had Dr. Jim Lawrence on the program from. Uh, you can look up either one of those. Uh, if you look at, I'm trying to think of a the the was Swedenborg lying episode you know that one we had that that has both guys from I think both colleges on there so take a look or just just Google Swedenborg I don't know how much either both of those have in terms of um, online course offerings but if they don't have them bug them about it maybe they'll start to uh, they'll start to get on that so glad you're pumped about it Deborah and uh, and I wish you the best of luck in your learning. Okay, let's get to the next one. This is Blender, YouTube. Swedenborg has to work hard to justify the Bible. Why didn't he just convey his experiences directly without referring to the Bible? He always says that you don't ever have 
to hear the Bible to get into heaven. Yeah, it seems like he had to work hard to justify the Bible because it's so hard for me to explain what he's talking about. Um, actually, it all starts. It's interesting because people who come who like what Swedenborg has to say, um, you know, oftentimes there's sometimes there are people from a biblical type background. A lot of times it's not because a lot of the stuff he's saying veers more toward what people from who are interested in what you would now call spirituality, uh, near-death experiences, other traditions, other faith traditions. It, it really goes well with all that stuff. That's what part of what makes Swedenborg such an interesting case is that he was so entrenched in the Bible as well, and that a lot of all these truths, you know, all this stuff that resonates with people in Swedenborg's writings, he a lot of that he got from this reading of the Bible. But that's where that stuff comes out of. Even though when you get down to the source of it and try to read it line by line, it seems like oh, you're you're dragging this you're dragging this thing along behind you. To him, that was the living source. It wasn't just like, well, I have these experiences and sometimes I read the Bible. Like the central thing for him was reading this text, and that was what informed him and gave meaning to these experiences. So even though it seems unbelievable. And it's a hard thing to convey. We work to convey it in little bits here. To him, that was like, that was the foundation. And it was from that you pull everything else, uh, believe it or not. However, yes, he said you don't have to hear it to get into heaven. What you have to do is live a life of love and faith according to what you believe. So you will get there. Um, the way he puts it, though, you can get really, really high-grade material out of the Bible. And it doesn't mean we gave you a bunch tonight but it's in there. So those are my thoughts on it. Thanks very much for the questions. Next one, Lee, YouTube. If we are made in the image and likeness of God, how can we sin? So there's a there's a passage in the Bible that says we're made in the image and likeness of God, and Swedenborg has a lot of commentary on that, that we aren't automatically the image and likeness of God. We can be. You know, you can come run into some people who are very you would say, oh, I, you know, I hope God's like that person. I mean, that that's a very, there's a lot of love coming out of that person, but there's plenty of people or plenty of states that we can get into where that's not, we're not acting very much like God at all. We're, you know, we're acting very, we sometimes call it human, but we, we call it animal sometimes. It, and he has technical definitions for both image and likeness, but we only achieve, and I forget the, the nuances of the difference right now, but we only achieve those things the image and likeness when we start to act, when we start to have this joining where God's love is flowing through us. That's when we're in the image and likeness of God. If we turn away and, and the more we block up that inflow from God, even though we still have the same physical shape, the less that we actually have the image of God in us. And that actually when you get into the spiritual world, as Swedenborg describes, we don't even look, if we don't have this image and likeness of God in us, we look less and less human the more that we've shut it out. Because the the physical image is one thing, but the spiritual image is, is where you can really be a likeness of God if you're just letting that love in. So that's what he says about it. Uh, good question. Thank you very much. Let's take a look at our next one. This is from FCOGZA. How do you progress from the spiritual character to the heavenly one? Yeah, so Swedenborg makes a technical, it's a great question, Swedenborg makes a technical distinction between spiritual and heavenly, or as it used to be translated, spiritual and celestial, and that um, spiritual, like, there's there's natural, which is like, you don't care about anyone, you're just doing whatever you want. Uh, then spiritual is you have a set of higher principles, and you don't always want to go by them, but you 
you know it's the right thing to do, so you'll force yourself to. Heavenly is where you love what's good. You you want to do what's good. You wouldn't even want to, even if it's, a, okay, no one's ever going to know what you did today, you wouldn't even want to do anything bad, you, ever, because because you have this heavenly mindset, because it you feel it. It's like this Garden of Eden state. You feel it, like this is what I want. The way we move there, as Swedenborg describes it, is slowly, and it's through, generally our side of things is to refuse things that when something, as he puts it, like dishonest or unfair or harmful comes up, if we don't do it because we know it'll harm people and we continue to acknowledge God as the source of good, then that slowly, the whole process of life is that regeneration. Um, you know, he described the the, uh, the Swedenborg Foundation, I think, has a book called, yeah, has regeneration. It's a short little booklet um, that you can go to Swedenborg.com. You can download it for free as an ebook or a PDF. And that is sort of selected teachings on Swedenborg's um, description of regeneration. And that will give more sense of how we make this transition. So those, it's a huge topic. Those are a few of my initial thoughts. Thanks very much for the, for the question. Um, next, let's take a look at our next question. Lupe, YouTube. What does Swedenborg say is the ultimate purpose for human to be good? Is it the assurance of our species survival on earth or is it for heavenly purposes? Uh, he would say the point of, of being good is, you know, what is good is defined by the aim behind it. So if you're doing things that are good, like look good, or you want to give money to charity or something, but you're just doing it to get ahead, essentially it's not good. The point of goodness is actually not a calculated thing, that you are doing something that's good because it's good, because it's going to help someone, not uh, not thinking of the reward in it. However, if you're looking... Um, like what is good and what actions are good or bad? Is it about what continues to make people survive on earth or is it something for heaven? You know, like, is it something spiritual? I, those generally shouldn't be too separate. I mean, the earth is an integral part of the whole spiritual, um, the whole spiritual strata or the whole mechanism. You know, angels, people in heaven, according to Swedenborg, need the earth to be like it is. We need people on the earth, and God wants this machine to keep going because it makes, this is where people first have their life here, and then you can move on from there. So, you know, we can't just say, all right, forget about the earth. We're going for heavenly stuff. It's the same kind of thing, and that we all are developing our spirit through doing good things on earth. You know, um, there's a million, there's a million ways I could go with this question. My last, I'll just do a few now. My last one is that you know, to Swedenborg, being involved in earthly matters was a very important part of spirituality, to try to, while we're here, work on our society here, try to get it good. As we said in another episode, one of the last things he ever wrote was, or some of the last things he ever wrote, even after his spiritual phase begun, were things about, like, systems of government, and even, like, how to uh, inflate or deflate things, or how to mine well for things, like, earthly kind of things, because it's important to have this part working well. So I don't know if any of those are the, the answer to what you were asking, but that's the nature of this question segment. We we throw a lot of darts and hopefully hit something. So thanks very much for that. Uh, we got a couple more here. Rocky Soul on YouTube. If Swedenborg asks us to be a good neighbor, shouldn't we be a good neighbor and see the Lord in everyone? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Um, the, the neighbor, you know, and this is like the... Uh, like, who is the neighbor? You know, the neighbor is the goodness in everyone. Um, you want to encourage the goodness in everyone. And the way that Swedenborg... You might think, um, oh, well, then you should criticize the badness in everyone, but the way Swedenborg describes 
angels, which is what we're trying to get to be and emulate, is they don't want to point out the evil in people. They want to try to put a good interpretation on it where possible, and they want to encourage the good. Uh, of course, you can't, there's times when you got to set boundaries and stuff, but in general, yeah, you want to try to see the Lord in everyone, and you want to try to be, like, you want to be doing good, and if you have to be doing good discerningly, you're not looking to judge people. You're like, okay, I'm just going to, there's a story in the Bible, since we're talking about Bible stories, about, um, you guys know Abraham? He has these sons that kind of, he, Abraham gets drunk, and the sons back up and put their shirts over him so no one sees him naked. That's about not focusing on people's evil and not trying to judge them for their evil. Even if you see it, you try to, you know, get it out of the way, but do it in a respectful way. So there's a long answer to that. All right, great. Let's take a look at more. Uh, looks like we still got a few more. Jim, YouTube, what does Swedenborg say about the forgiveness of sin through Jesus? In Christianity, this is your only hope for salvation. Yeah, um, so Swedenborg talks a lot about Jesus, um, and he differed from his Christian contemporaries and differed from the uh, you know modern interpretations of a lot of Christian churches in that it's not like forgiveness of sins, like you've angered God through your sin, and now Jesus has to get in the way so that God is not mad at you anymore. He sees To him, there's just one God, and if you look at our episode, Who or What is Jesus?, another episode of this show, we do cover a lot of this, but essentially, God is Jesus, is love and wisdom, and it's only through God's goodness that we can be reformed, that we can go from being natural to spiritual to heavenly, that we can be pulled out of our own negative tendencies, that if we weren't being held up and backed by God, we would plunge into all kinds of negative, like like just sort of the stuff that in your worst moments you consider, if there was no love coming in from God, we'd go after that stuff. So that is Jesus saving everyone. Um, but, you know, see the episode on who or what is Jesus, because there's a lot of nuance of, you don't necessarily have to know the name Jesus Christ, you can be interacting with that human God, even not realizing it. So check out that episode, I I think you would find a much better answer than what I just said. Okay, two more, and then we're going to wrap it up for the night. Drive by Poet YouTube, does Swedenborg say why this has to be such a long process? Why can't God have it be so all at once without any trouble? Yeah, you know, I'm wondering that too. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I've been alive for 30 years, um, but that's long, man. Life is long, and it can be a grind sometimes. The answer is that it's the same reason why uh, a person, that, uh, as I understand, it's the same reason why a person takes nine months to develop. It's not just like you're pregnant and they're born, because structures like that have to be done in order, and that we can't just be changed. Swedenborg says you can't just change someone in an instant, that God is not omnipotent in that way, uh, that he just can just disregard the divine design, that he's in that design, and that we have to follow the steps in order for our consciousness to do it. Because if it was all at once, it wouldn't be our choice, that we have to actually make these choices, we have to work with it in there. I don't have, a, I don't have all the knowledge on that. It's a tough question, because life is tough, and you do kind of want it to go faster, but those are the beginnings of the answers that I have from Swedenborg. All right, our last one for tonight. This is Josh. 
YouTube, speaks of universal love. How can this love exist given the information of what separates us from each other? Or is the universal love only to come in heaven? Yeah, it can seem hard. It's a great question. It can seem hard. Uh, how can you love everyone? Love is not necessary. Love is not the same toward everyone. If there's somebody who is trying to kill people, the most loving thing is to stop them. It's not to say, okay, I want to support you doing what you're doing. Um, that there are, it's not, it's not all love is the same, but as Swedenborg describes it, um, even if you, he, he says in, I think it's true Christianity, that you can still be practicing love or charity towards someone if somebody's breaking a law or attacking you or something like that, um, uh, you know, you have to um, go and, like, send them to a judge or something like that, right? Um, where you have to get them convicted. You can still be acting lovingly towards them if you are w- wanting to become their friend when they turn around, you know, and I have the ultimate intention of loving people. So even if you have all this, you can't necessarily um, interface with people's behavior. If you're wanting on some level life to turn out well for them, then we can start to get at that universal love. Like the neighbor is the goodness in everyone. So the, there's some people have a lot of, it seems like they have a lot of evil, um, but there's some goodness and what you can focus on there, or at least imagining them turning it around. Like it, overall, are you on their team or not? Meaning, would you rather they just lose or would you rather they figure out they're being bad and turn around? I think that's what we can kind of do with the heart. And uh, before I go, our fact-checking team wanted to alert me that I said it was Abraham in that story with a shirt. It's actually Noah. What are you going to do, man? It's Noah. Okay, so... If you guys like to see errors like that on live broadcasts, please consider donating to this program. Uh, you know, we, we're a nonprofit organization. We depend on member support. Uh, we have a five-to-one matching grant. Just click this thing right here, make your donation, uh, and that would be super, super helpful. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate you coming out and uh, thinking through this topic with me. Next week, we're going to be back, and we're going to go uh, something uh, on completely on the other end of the spectrum. We're going to look at the spiritual significance of clothing. So if that sounds interesting, why wouldn't it? Uh, I'll see you next Monday.